Jonestown is a caring, sharing community where men, women, and children of all backgrounds live in total racial and economic equality. And that's Dennis Allen. He was a Temple member. Sounds legit. <laughs> wink, wink. This is Jen. <laughs> this is Becky. And this is Too Close to Home. We're going to talk about Jonestown and the People's Temple. Part three. Part three. Part three. Part three. This is really because uh, we're going to have more parts. This is not the end. This will be one of our longest series to date. Beginning of the end. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go over through the salsas again. The Road to Jonestown. It's a really good resource. Um, it's written by Jeff Gunn. Last podcast on the left, episodes 300 to 304, Rolling Stone Magazine, PBS, Wikipedia, and the Alternative Considerations of Jonestown and the People's Temple by San Diego University. So last time on People's Temple, we talked about the love story between Jim Jones and amphetamines, his move from religion to socialism, the birth of John John the Godchild, <laughs> and rapid expansion in the People's Temple. Today, we're going to talk about escalating abuse, Jim's political career, and how they found Eden and Guyana. Hmm. Precious. The People's Temple Planning Commission began in the early 1970s. He previously had what he called his kitchen cabinet of people who he trusted and relied upon. It ended in the 60s, however. I'm going to refer to the Planning Commission as PC. So the PC included many professionals, lawyers, teachers, nurses, care home managers, as well as many of their spouses and family members. While initially you would think he's tapping these people for their talents and experience, in truth, many of these people were the types who would see through the flim-flam easier than other members. So he used the PC to inflate their egos and keep a very close watch on these people in a more intimate setting as a way to make sure that everything was copacetic and just see what was happening on a member level. It was highly coveted role for members, but it also was filled with people who handled all of Jim Jones' needs and wants without a single fucking break. <laughs> These people would be extremely tired all the time due to being available at Jim's every whim. And Jim never fucking slept, so he ain't sleeping, you ain't sleeping. <laughs> right? We're doing amphetamines together. People also abused this position by going to the movies, drinking... All under Jim's nose, which is human nature. If they were caught, though, they'd be brought to the floor of a meeting where they would have to answer to Jim and the other members of the PC in a process called catharsis, on which afterwards Jim would gaslight the member. I did this for your best interest. Not at all. Do I get hard from berating you? Hmm. Lies. <laughs> he would also spank members. Oh. So first with his hand and then he went on to a paddle and this is the name of the paddle the board of education <laughs> okay, i'm here for that <laughs> well it started out as a few hits it would grow to hundreds of times and cause some people to need medical attention Jeez. he also used this group to test out his first white night so it's like a pre-white night white night former member laura johnston cole stated during one meeting he handed out wine for us to drink he had set up some PC members ahead of time to fall off their chairs or somehow look poisoned. Then after we had drunk the liquid, he told us that we had all been poisoned. People screamed and fell off chairs and a few ran from the room. That's when he told us that it was just a drill to see how dedicated we were. I didn't believe for a moment and I didn't have the sense to be scared of what might come of that charade. I think that I had seen Jim in so many personal settings and show such wisdom and insight and in humanity, I just never let myself distrust him. Even after that, 
looking back 30 years later, it's unimaginable to think that you survived him beginning his loyalty test like this and know that eventually over 900 people would succumb to something like this. All I could think is that even if you were like playing around, you're like, oh, I poisoned you. Just kidding. That I'd be like, I'm not ever eating or drinking anything from her again, nor are we going to be friends because this is weird. You're going to catch these hands. You're going to catch these hands. <laughs> <laughs> so the PC group uh, were some of the first in the People's Temple to see Guyana. They went with Jim in December 1973 to take a look at the proposed site. He also started another group called the Steering Committee. This group would be the inner inner circle and would be the ones who handled the mass exodus from California to Guyana. These people were also involved in mass suicide decisions. The group, both PC and regular, would be abused and rewarded in weird ways, such as his own stigmata. Do you know what a stigmata is? Yeah. Okay. For those who are uninitiated, stigmata. I've seen the movie. Yeah, I've seen the movie. <laughs> there is a movie when people spontaneously bleed from the hands, palms. As to reflect, crucified. you know, to reflect Jesus's crucifixion. So his wounds, like the one in the ribs and all that. Crown of thorns. Mm-hmm. So the member would cut themselves and their blood would be used on himself in the form of stigmata as Jones insisted that human blood was absolutely necessary. Then you use, use your own damn blood shit. I know, right? That's how bloodborne illnesses get around, okay? <laughs> Tell you hepatitis. <laughs> Tell you the hip. <laughs> The punishment experienced by members were extreme for minor infractions, but the more serious rule-breaking punishments were horrific. The People's Temple would let sex offenders and pedophiles join the church. One such offender was pedophile Peter Walterspoon. He made a promise to never touch a child or else face consequences. And he, of course, did molest a little boy. And instead of being taken to police, he was brought to a room where he was instructed to pull his genitals out and place them on the table. The little boy? No, the man. Oh, okay. Because once they found oh, the, out... the yeah. pedophile did. Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah, once the, they found out the pedophile had um, diddled the little boy, all bets were off. So, once he had his genitals on the table, another member beat his dick and balls with a rubber hose so many times it became unrecognizable. He would have to use a catheter for months afterwards but stayed with the temple nonetheless. Oh, my. I know what you're thinking. Why would anyone stay? Simply put, he had already separated them from any possible lifeline these people had, both in social and financial aspects. Most people either had already alienated themselves from their families prior to the cult or became separated after Jones' tactics, leaving their only emotional and social support to be other members of that cult and Jim. Many of them given up all their possessions from clothing and jewelry to help the homeless and sell those things to support the mission of the church. Or they had been pretty much weaseled out of extremely valued real estate and other holdings. Mm. One couple were supposed to go on a mission in another country. So they signed over their property to the people simple so they could keep watch. Mm. And then the mission got canceled, and Jim was like, "Ah, uh, you don't really need this anyways. The church does. I'm just going to hold on to it. <laughs> uh, another good portion worked for the temple, and 90% of what they made was tithed back to the church, even with having families. What's tithing? You know what that is, I'm yeah. sure. But um, for those who also don't know about this, a tithing is a tenth of something paid as a voluntary contribution 
or as a tax, essentially for the support of a religious establishment. Normal tithing is usually 10% of your income, and that's how it started in the church. I remember I worked with a girl, and every Friday, I don't know why she did this at work, but she'd pull out her checkbook and write a check to her church for her tithes. And I just remember being there because I was like poor as shit at the time, being like, oh, fuck, you going to give people your money. So. <laughs> no. I mean, I'll put some money in the offering plate when it comes around. But it ain't going to be 10% of my paycheck. I can tell you that right now. And I was far less jaded back in those days. But to sit there and think about it, like, the fuck you going to get my money, bitch? Get a job. Exactly. Jesus was a carpenter. You go get my money. Stop it. It eventually grew into them writing their income on a piece of paper, presenting it to Jim for him to decide how much they should tithe. And at the end, it was like 90% of what they were making. Oh, I'm sure it was. Their room and board were also paid for by the church. Effectively, they were indentured servants with no end date of contract. Leaving would mean absolute destitution. He had made it known that if No, because I'm going to leave with all 100% of my paycheck. No, I'm going to leave out. (laughs) Well, that's the trouble because people who were tithing that money over also worked for the church. So Mm. you're going to... That's all right. I'll find another job. (laughs) Becky, I'm fine. (laughs) Fuck y'all. And this is why Becky will never be in a cult. (laughs) (laughs) He made it known that if you left the cult, you had to sign a document of liability, should they speak ill of the church, and release its secret, as well as agreeing to always live at least 100 miles away from the church. So effectively, snipping all the lifelines you would have left. So think about those people who were in Scientology, and they left. Their families have nothing to do with them if they're still in there. So you're breaking up your whole ass family. And that happens in the people's temple quite often. What do you think I would say if he gave me a document to sign? I ain't signing shit. I ain't signing shit, son. You want me 100 miles away? Done. This is what gets me. It's like they, he would have them sign these incriminating documents like, I murdered this person and threw him in the ocean. Nobody, no crime. <laughs> First of all, nobody, no crime. <laughs> nobody, no crime. Second of all, I ain't one of your little snitches. Nah. <laughs> Like, what? like the police are going to believe your ass. You right? can't even take your sunglasses off. <laughs> I wear my sunglasses at night. And in church. <laughs> <laughs> After they would leave the church, if they did, he would actually, he had these people that were enforcers, basically, and they would watch to make sure that they did move away. And if they didn't, they would intimidate the person and stalk them until they did. Jesus. Over time and with the rapid growth of People's Temple in such a small town meant that they would have to relocate. People's Temple expanded into Los Angeles and made some serious bank (laughs) because it's L.A., you know what I'm saying? Um, The location's primary purpose was to recruit members and served as a way station for the temple's weekly bus trips across California because the bus trips did not stop. They were going back and forth recruiting people and bringing them back to Temple. Like, who? Okay, hmm. Somebody come rolling up in your town. <laughs> and an old ass fucking Greyhound bus that probably smells awful. Horrible. Yes. I don't even know. I don't even know how to describe that. And say, you know what? Come with me to the promised land. If that's the vehicle taking me to the promised <laughs> land, I'll pass. I'll wait for the devil. <laughs> I'll pass. Thank you. <laughs> While LA was a great money source, he wanted more. So this led him to the Golden Gate city of San Francisco. So, what do you know about San Francisco, Becky? I know the Golden Gate Bridge is there. Mm-hmm. 
What about the people? I know there's a... a okay. From what I've heard... <laughs> from a friend of a friend. <laughs> there's a lot of homosexuals there. Yes. It is. That's true. LGBTQ Right. Plus. In this time that Jim was going there, it was before all this very... like Because they're very open, liberal. It's a sanctuary city. It's got some of the first people who were elected to public uh, positions that were openly gay. There is all this other stuff going on. But at this time, they were actually cons extremely conservative. And this was not. Oh, okay. It was just like on the dawn of it, I guess. People were seeking more rights and representation at that time. And cue Jim Jones and his communism equality. <laughs> so using his mother as a ploy, he sought out Dr. Carlton Goodlett to be her physician. Pretending to be the attentive son, he was interested in Goodlett for his political and racial connections. Goodlett was a political power broker, which is a person who influences people to vote towards a particular client. An example, an elected official or a referendum of some sort that they that it would pretty much benefit that person. In exchange for political and financial benefits. So, like, have you ever seen the campaign? Mm-mm. In that movie, there are these two guys and their brothers, and they pretty much pay for this person to run against another person. And that's what a power broker pretty much like. You're going to run here. I'm going to influence to make sure that this happens this way so I can get what I want down the line. Okay. And so, like, big companies will also do that. They're called lobbyists or whatever, I guess. Don't quote me. <laughs> I don't watch C-SPAN. <laughs> don't either. He was a dominant figure in San Francisco's civil rights movement and securing jobs for African Americans and appointments to important city commissions that blacks had never held. He would take her to Dr. Goodlett and drop little hints of his views of equality and that he was a pastor and Goodlett ate it up. <laughs> Eventually, he would be invited to give guest sermons at all black churches in San Francisco. He got a large 1800 seat space to place his San Francisco location's roots, all the while quietly siphoning members from those churches to his own. After establishing the church, the temple was sitting pretty well with three dutiful locations in Ukiah, Los Angeles, and San Francisco. This would make the temple burst with new members, and most importantly, cash flow, and the assets gained from those members. They would call the Ukiah location, which was like Redwood Valley and all that, the mother church, but spent a lot of time in San Francisco due to wanting to be more involved in politics as the power was attractive. As seen in Indianapolis, he w was this person who was trailblazing desegregation and all that. And then when he came back from Brazil, that stuff was happening whether he was there or not. So he's looking for that need again. And San Francisco has that need. Were most of his congregants white? No. I think it was like half black, half white. It was pretty 50-50. I have some demographics. I'll have to get for sure. But he had a good mix of both. They actually opened a whole mess of satellite churches at this time as well. And they would go on in places like Bakersfield, Fresno, Sacramento. Despite claiming 20,000 members, it was actually closer to 5,000 at its highest, <laughs> making it harder for Jim to create those one-on-one -on -one connections. Like before, I said, you know, he could talk to anyone and remember all these things. But when you start getting to numbers like that, how are you going to have these situations where people are super allegiant to you? How do you really touch them where 
they feel like they owe their life to you. It's right. hard. As the temple grew, he needed a way to keep that bond strong. And you know what stirs people up quite well? An attempted assassination from some unknown entity. <laughs> so back on in Redwood Valley, Jim was walking around before service in the parking lot. And of course, there were a good many witnesses. Everyone was having a, just a gorgeous Sunday. The, and the People's Temple Band was just softly singing in the background. And a shot rings out. And Jim falls. Bleeding from his chest, he points in the direction of the supposed shooter. Except there's no one there. His son's dog actually ran in the opposite direction where the sound actually came from. Oh, I was going to say the dog that went to the dog and he had a little gun around his collar. What is it, Lassie? You shot Jim Jones? (laughs) That's what I'm thinking. Like, okay, this shit's getting (laughs) real dick. Within minutes, they all pick him up and they go running in the church with him and they lay him down and then he stands up. Oh, stop it. And says, fear not, people. I have healed myself. Stop. And Marceline, who was a nurse, as well as some of the other members, swore up and down it had been mortal wounding and the hole in his chest was big enough to put a finger in. They considered his bloody shirt as a relic of his miracle and made a shrine where it was kept for all to remember his divine powers of healing until the Mendocino cops heard about the supposed attempted assassination and they were going to come out and visit the church and they were like, oh, shit, we got to put the shirt up. Of course, because they were going to, the police were going to be like, mm, fake news, guys. Um, this is corn syrup, okay? <laughs> yeah. You couldn't even spring for pig's blood? Come on now. <laughs> So despite the eventual attention it received from authorities, he had chosen Redwood Valley for the attempt as it was desolate. He could have his shooter hidden somewhere less noticeable. So like they were out pretty much in the woods. You hide him next to a tree. If you are in L.A. and San Francisco with a sniper rifle, people are going to fucking notice. (laughs) This showed members that they were not safe from evil forces, not even at their home base. And that they must be vigilant and protect Jim at all times, spurring his paranoia into theirs. After this, his personal security became much more menacing. They looked more like mercenaries in uniforms with a cold demeanor than they were temple members. In 1972, a writer, <laughs> a writer from the San Francisco Examiner, Lester Kinsolving, began investigating Jim Jones and the People's Temple. Lester was a ordained Episcopal priest and religion editor for the San Francisco Examiner, and he wrote about the allegations of physical abuse, financial misdeeds, and suspect theology of the People's Temple. Kinsolving also reported that members were being punished in group meetings for crimes against the church, noting the example of a young boy being forced to eat his own vomit. Mm. By the time the publication was ready to go, he had enough material for an eight-day series. This expose totally freaked out Jim until it caused an influx of new members. <laughs> Guess there really is no such thing as bad news. Nope. No such thing as bad press. <laughs> Temple members mobilized write letters to the editor of the Examiner and picketed the newspaper's offices in protest. They only made it through like four articles before they axed the series and they just wouldn't release any more information. This also launched Jones' personal campaign against fake news. Oh my gosh. (laughs) He was such a pioneer. (laughs) I know. Does that mean that the Proud Boys are a cult 
led by Trump? Are they getting branded and sexualized and acting out with insane rallies and trucks covered in flags? Did Jennifer just crack the case wide open? I fucking did! (laughs) (laughs) While Jim Jones was always spouting racial equality and even would at times state whites were the inferior race, it's ridiculous that he did that because 99% of his upper echelon his his go-tos were white. <laughs> the people who were in charge of things in lieu were of white. him were white. Further, the most wealthy people were put into those key leadership positions in exchange for their money and assets, which, of course, most of those people were also white. What Jim did not count on was eight scrappy teens saying enough is enough and defecting at the same time. They saw that those white members were being treated disproportionately better and allowed investment to key positions of Jim's inner circle due to the money they had given. Meanwhile, the black members, who offered as much as possible for themselves, like, I mean, just because their donation is $10 does not trump this rich-ass person's donation. I mean, they're they're giving all they can. $10 might be 90% of their income. Exactly. They were treated like workers in an ant colony. A cult colony. They were also aware of Jim's sexual endeavors, <laughs> which were not as secret as he thought they were. The eight teenagers left in three vehicles headed to the Canadian border, avoiding U.S. Highway 101. Then they diverted instead of heading over the border due to having weapons in their possession, and they headed to the hills in Montana. <laughs> they knew Jim would come after them, hunt them down, and get them to return. And they were correct. Jim employed multiple search parties, including one that scanned highways from a rented airplane. Wow. These efforts were in vain and instead taught Jim that these college students were a weak spot. They weren't the ones who were working around the clock and experiencing that Jones programming. They were college students who had knowledge and time at their hands. They were allowed to go to college and they were exempt from some of the duties that these other people were doing. So it made them more dangerous to him. He realized that they had seen through his bullshit and that his sexual adventures were not as secret as they thought as he thought they were and that someone in the planning commission must have snitched. Snitches wind up in ditches, bitches. In Montana, <laughs> the group carefully wrote a letter to Jim and in this letter, they actually blamed staff, not Jones, for the issues of inequality and hypersexualism in the group and not necessarily because they believed that he was blameless but in fear of retaliation. They had to make a statement but... If you read this letter, it'll be like, Dad, we're not mad at you because they all call him father or dad. Like, we're not mad at you. It's all these motherfuckers that work for you, okay? (laughs) We're done with it. With the revelation of loose lips in the PC and people becoming less cult-minded and more individual-minded, Jones cracked down. He first had everyone sign blank confessions to be filled in later by whatever Jim would want to accuse them of. Not for the police, but for the congregation. So they would become a pariah in their own community. One member named Lori Efron was like part Patty Cartmel. She wanted to be Jones' booty call list, but wasn't his type. Once Jones heard this, he brought her in front of the entire congregation and heckled and demeaned her for her crush. And how could she even possibly have the audacity to think she was worthy of Jim Jones? <sighs> he then had her strip and went point by point on her body, <gasps> listing out all the things he disliked and was disgusted by, as well as the reasons why he would never have sex with her. When he was done, he had her sit naked for the rest of the meeting. Oh my God, that's horrible. Mm-hmm. The only other person to talk back was Juan L. Smart, which in turn made her defect. 
eventually. When she left, Jim had her hold a gun so he could turn it in and possibly implicate her in a future crime. Wow. With the emphatic following and the AIDS defection, he realized that the key to keeping this cult train going was to be completely isolated from any possible outside influence as well as keep them essentially trapped in the cult. He had to make America become a terrifying enemy that would manipulate his people into following him anywhere. He told people that the government was going around and imprisoning people of all color, but he had the ability to keep them safe. So come with me if you want to live. (laughs) Of course. And you know what they're going to call this promised land? Jonestown. That's it. (laughs) She's so smart, y'all. She's so smart. Now, we already know that how Jones thought he was like his own version of Debbie and Debbie Does Dallas cult edition. (laughs) But when you think with the wrong head, you fuck around and find out. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So to get a little freakier than normal, he decided he was going to go cruising at Westlake Theater across from MacArthur Park in L.A. This spot was well known for cruising for anonymous random sex, mostly gay men. December 13th, 1973, Jim headed to attend an afternoon screening of Dirty Harry at the Westlake Theater. Fitting. Yeah. Sitting in the balcony wearing a coat in disguise. Okay, first of all. First of all. Like, that's a good stop. Nice stop. <laughs> uh, he gave the traditional cruising foot tap to engage a stranger next to him. So they both got up and headed to the bathroom. Unfortunately for Jim, it was an undercover cop. And when... Uh, the officer walked into the men's room. Jim was already full on choking the chicken. Oh. Pants around the ankles. Oh. And he was subsequently arrested for indecent exposure. I'm like, I'm bro, a- bro, 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 bro. <laughs> I'm a cop. Pull your pants <laughs> up. Woo. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> Could you imagine like holding your badge up like, oh, my God. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I envisioned him in a trench coat, too. Jim went to court and presented a note from a urologist stating Uh, that he had a bad prostate, making urination difficult. And that's what he was doing. He was just basically manually shaking that pee-pee out. Okay. That's not how it works. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, you know what? He's right. Case was thrown out. Stop. Yes, it was. (laughs) And why are people not still using this as a defense? <laughs> I have a bad prostate. Okay? I'm just shaking it out. I'm just... But it makes Taylor Swift shake it <laughs> Thanks, Jennifer, for ruining so, that song for me. You're welcome. <laughs> so why is it important to hear about him shaking his pee-pee out? I let's, don't know, Jennifer, why? <laughs> let's talk about Guyana for a minute. Guyana achieved independence from the United Kingdom as a Dominion in 1966 and became a republic in 1970, remaining a member of the Commonwealth. Being a new young country meant that they didn't have a whole heck of a lot of money, and when approached by Jim Jones for a settlement of Jonestown, it was an attractive idea. Not only would they establish a settlement in a previously untouched area, they were going to pay Guyana to do it, which meant it was, about, it was just about immediately approved. So in 1974, the People's Temple signed a lease to rent land in Guyana. So a few dozen temple members, along with Jim's pet chimpanzee, Mr. Muggs. Oh, I forgot about the monkeys. Headed to Guyana. Around there, too. Right. Headed to Guyana to pave the way for the settlement. So Mr. Muggs is a chimpanzee. So the other ones were like the smaller monkeys. I don't know what they were. 
but he actually was pretty popular with the, the group, right? People had heard from Jim that he had saved Mr. Muggs from a medical research facility, but that was not true. He bought the monkey. Um, he bought him at a pet store and was named after the Tonight Show mascot, J. Fred Muggs. So <laughs> adorable. It's adorable till he dies at the end. Oh, it's not. I, that was a very sarcastic adorable. <laughs> None of this is adorable. <laughs> no. Uh, he actually would eventually succumb to the massacre in Jonestown as well. Precious. Mm. Very. This was going to be a long-term settlement, Jonestown, and it was going to happen in stages. It was never meant to be an overnight endeavor. So while these brave Jonestown pilgrims endured the jungle, he started diving into politics headfirst. All true sociopaths do. Right. So in the early to mid-70s, Jim became a large political force to be reckoned with. Sounds fucking dangerous. Mm-hmm. This was thanks in part to a state assemblyman and future San Francisco mayor, Willie Brown, <laughs> as well as state Senate president, George Moscone. Having the ears of the disenfranchised and using his cult, Jim and these politicians had a almost parasite and host relationship. They needed him. They needed him because he had their ears. Not like mango literal ears, though. <laughs> he was planning to run for mayor of San Francisco and eventually governor of California. And of course, we all know he did not do those things, but he had large political aspirations. Moscone ran for mayor in San Francisco in 1975. Jim Jones and the People's Temple were integral in getting him elected, and in thanks, he appointed Jim to the chairman of the San Francisco Housing Authority Commission. And in what world is he <laughs> qualified? I don't even know what they do, but it don't sound like something that he need to be doing. The housing authority should be the ones who like um, help, like run projects and stuff like that, like a uh, project. You know what I'm talking about, like you know, the area where you live if you need help living. Oh, like. Uh, projects and stuff? Yes, like yeah, projects. Yeah. Government, like... Uh, Assisted living. Yeah. There we go. With Jim's help, he was able to win against his opponent, John Barbagaletta, by 4,400 votes. He also helped the new DA and the sheriff get elected, who also attended temple meetings. He used his position at the Housing Authority to lead the fight against eviction of tenants from San Francisco's International Hotel. The Temple further forged an alliance with San Francisco's black community newspaper, The Sun Reporter publisher, Dr. Carlton Goodlett, as we spoke about earlier. The newspaper gave many favorable mentions in that paper and also received frequent favorable coverage from San Francisco Chronicle columnist Herb Kane and other local newspaper and television reporters. So he would be like in the, uh, like the Inquirer, and they talk about celebrities and stuff, and the the rumor columns and stuff for celebrities. Mm -hmm. He felt like he finally made it when he made it to those. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. I was like, okay, I hear you, I hear you, I hear you. I mean, if our podcast made it to it, I feel like we finally made it. Yeah, like if we had a stalker, that'd be terrifying, but we would made it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> have you really made it until you have a stalker? No, right. You <laughs> At this time, the People's Temple became a pre-Scientology with celebrities and politicians alike. They were to receive support from California political figures such as Moscone, Governor Jerry Brown, Congressman Mervyn Dimley, State Assembly Speaker Willie Brown, Assemblyman Art Agnos, and Supervisor Harvey Milk. Willie Brown 
visited the temple numerous times and spoke publicly in support of Jones, even after investigations and suspicions of cult activity, even after the Jonestown massacre. Oh. Jones and Moscone met privately with presidential nominee Jimmy Carter's then-running mate, U.S. Senator Walter Mondale in San Francisco days before the 1976 presidential election. He also met First Lady Rosalind Carter on, on multiple occasions, including a private dinner, and corresponded with her in letters. And there are pictures of him and her together. This is a part of his visibility with, again, the disenfranchised. And it was a good look for the Carters. Like, not Carters like Beyonce and Jay-Z, but Jimmy <laughs> Carter. And since Jimmy Carter was running for political for uh, presidential office. And then you also have author and founder of the Black Panthers, Huey Newton, Angela Davis, a political activist, as well as Jane Fonda and her husband. They all attended services at the People's Temple. Wow. Typhoid, what did they call her, Jimmy? Jane Fonda. Because remember, she was like anti-Vietnam. Jimmy's Fun Facts. People of the 80s may remember Jane Fonda for her cringy workout videos, but during the Vietnam War, she was known for something a little more infamous. In 1972, Jane Fonda went on a controversial anti-war tour in Vietnam as part of her extremely divisive activism career. While there are things that could be said about her actions prior to this tour, such as helping create an anti-USO show, this event fundamentally altered the public's perception of her. She was invited to North Vietnam, the opposing force, for a two-week-long tour. During this stay, she visited sites throughout the country, made radio announcements over the voice of Vietnam radio, and met with American POWs in Hanoi. The Hanoi Jane moniker came as a result of a photograph taken of her with North Vietnamese troops while sitting on an anti-aircraft gun, a weapon that would have been used to shoot down American planes. After her return, not only did the State Department speak out against her, but some lawmakers considered her actions to be treasonous in nature. Even with Jane Fonda trying to reinvent herself and apologizing over the years, the notorious photograph and nickname continue to stick with her to this day. So we talked about Jim Jones, Rainbow Family. Well, what do you know? Carolyn Layton at this time. That was one of Jim's main concubines. Since he didn't like protection, she had to have quite a few abortions. Not one, not two, quite a few. It's a weird dichotomy of your body, your choice, when you're forced to get an abortion. Uh, eventually, she was allowed to keep one baby, but she disappeared from People's Temple for several months on a mission trip to Mexico. Wink, wink. <laughs> she wasn't really. She was pregnant, and she was at her house till the birth of her baby. <laughs> Jim told everyone that she was raped in jail in Mexico and it would be used against people. Oh, you think working straight hours, well, 20 straight hours sucks? Try being raped like Carolyn, okay? Stop it with your first world problems. <laughs> Born in 1975, Jim John Prokes, a.k.a. Chemo, a.k.a. Godchild, was born. <laughs> Carolyn bullied a fellow member, Michael Prokes, into a sham marriage and to explain his birth because they hid it from the rest of the temple. Most of the children in the people's temple were communally raised, meaning that they did not even live with their parents. When they say it takes a village, the literal ass village was raising these kids. <laughs> Carolyn, Grace, and Marceline, however, were allowed to raise their own children, showing some inequalities in the group. In 1975, Jim pulled his PC commission together. 
And he said, due to having a good year, where the People's Temple produced more wine than they attended, even though it's prohibited, we're all going to have a glass. Everyone's like, heck yeah. So everyone's drinking from their glasses. Jim's watching. Then after a few minutes, he told everyone he had poisoned them. And everyone in the room would be dead in 45 minutes. So Patty Cartmel starts like fucking losing her shit. Michael Prokes takes out a pistol and shoots her. After hitting the floor, Jim told them that if they didn't want to die by gun, he suggested that they would die with dignity. If you don't want me to shoot, chill the fuck out and let this poison take over. Yeah. Do it with dignity. Shit. Shit. Bitches. One of them has said, I hate to leave our children behind. Like somebody who was like kind of accepting me like this is the only regret I have. To which he said, no problem, bruh. I got a nuke and it's going to take these children out right after us. I got sippy cups. I'm about to hand out with poison. No. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> That's so dark. <laughs> <laughs> 45 minutes later when no one died, he announced it was a test and they had passed to prove Gotcha. It's a break. You've been punked. <laughs> Fucking Ashton Kutcher. <laughs> Patty had been faking. Michael had shot blanks and they were in on it, which is not unheard of. Because remember when he would do his miracles, he had other members on it. Mm-hmm. Most people in that 45 minutes either accepted their fate. Although afterwards they were like, Psh, I knew it was a death all the time. <laughs> like, okay, I'm sure you knew. I'd be like, look, Jim, the whole fake poison is kind of played out. Like we've do been done else? this a time or two. I'm just not going to drink nothing from you, motherfucker. I'm just tired of the pranks. If you ain't drinking it, I ain't drinking it. <laughs> Truth. Some thought it was beautiful to discover how willing they were to die for their cause. Not beautiful at all. Bro, there is no cause important enough for me to drink poison. I gotta put me first. Exactly. Preach. <laughs> Hallelujah. So this is the first of many of those nights that they would do these things. Uh, where no one would question it, and if they did, they were swiftly punished and ostracized, which is a ticking time bomb. So in the midst of all this happening, Jonestown is was slowly, and I mean very slowly, growing. In December 1973, Guyana was broke as hell, had a mil- little tiny military, poorly trained and equipped soldiers, and made it really attractive to Venezuela, who had been in a dispute with a fellow country over the... N- part of the property in the northern region of Guyana. While under British rule, Guyana, Venezuela was like, I we ain't gonna touch you. But now that they were at their own fucking place, they're like, ah, oh, uh, you slipping, you slipping, the Guyana. The queen ain't here, motherfucker. <laughs> she ain't here anymore either. <laughs> too soon, too soon, I'm sorry. <laughs> Guyana realized how vulnerable they were and how the People's Temple being an American organization would benefit them. Venezuela was afraid of American force, so if you stick Jonestown in that northern region that was disputed, it would keep Guyana safe at a minimal investment. Guyana brought the People's Temple to Matthews Ridge in the northern jungles, which had a small city nearby with an airstrip called Port Kaituma. You could fly from there to Georgetown, the capital. So while it was remote, it wasn't untouchable per se. Even though they were worried the jungle would dissuade the People's Temple from building, Jim Jones was very interested. It would take years for the final lease of land to go through. They initially started with a five-year lease of 3,000 acres with these stipulations. It was an annual rent of 25 cents per acre and a minimum investment in the settlement of $400,000. 
And as they flourished, the Guyanese would consider allowing them to expand. They originally had requested 25,000 acres versus the 3,000 that they were allowed to have. Because Guyana's like, whoa, 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 I said yes, but don't get too big for your bridges. Well, I like the way Guyana's <laughs> like, we got the perfect spot for you. <laughs> and it's like the spot they're going to be attacked under. <laughs> You're going to be so close to Venezuela. She's like, when a realtor takes, she's like, I got the perfect house that has good bones. That means it's in the <laughs> it's bones. apart. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so a dozen congregants from the People's Temple then went to the property in Guyana, aptly named Jonestown, and began excavating the land in spring 1974. These intrepid people who were the first to settle in Jonestown were very excited to get started. These were Indiana farmers, okay? So... Not necessarily the same thing they're used to, but it's Earth. They're excited about it. So Jim Jones had been told that while it would be hard, it was not impossible to excavate the land and that there would be rich farming soil underneath the brush. What they didn't count on was the extreme heat, humidity, wildlife, and more that would take it that would make it nearly impossible to complete this task by the requested completion timeline of fall 1974. Jim Jones was like, yeah, okay, so we're going to get you in now. This is spring. I'm going to need you to get this shit ready by fall so we can start sending some people over. This is how difficult it was. Everything was untouched. Extremely dangerous. You have a triple canopy of trees that would block out sunlight. Fucking snakes and spiders. Very anti-gen. Fucking jungle <laughs> cats and shit. No. Nah. say thunder cats? <laughs> jungle cats. Oh, I was like, fuck, they had the thunder cats there too. <laughs> Forget the fountain of youth. I found where the the Thundercats live. <laughs> they got ill quite a bit at first with things like sunburns, pulled muscles, cuts, things that are normal, and then things that were not normal, like larvae. They would walk barefoot a lot of times, and this larvae would be in the ground, and it would get into their feet and tunnel. Hmm. Like how bot flies are, but worse, I guess. It's a good time. Um, they lost pounds each day. They persevered, which, good on you, boo-boo. I ain't about it. <laughs> <laughs> no, me neither. Even with guides, they were in constant danger of getting lost, so clearing acreage was super important so they could settle. However, a normal chainsaw wouldn't even nick the trees. It was so, it was such strong wood, it would shatter the blades of a chainsaw. Damn. So... The natives that they hired. Why don't they just get the Thundercats to come out <laughs> there? And- We're the Thundercats when you need them. <laughs> That's the name of this episode. We're the Thundercats <laughs> when you need them. <laughs> so anyways. I'm sorry. The natives, uh, they had some native guides, people from Guyana, who knew everything about the environment to help them. And they were like, bruh, you can't cut these bitches down. What you have to do is a lever and pulley system. Where you're literally using another tree to kind of help pull it out. So dig these bitches up. Oh, you're just using raw ass manpower to lift a whole ass fucking tree out. I'm not about so that. So that means, like, if it's a chainsaw, you're just going toot, 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 toot. Fucking have to do that. Every single fucking tree in a forest that has never, ever been cut. Like, and completely untouched. These trees drag these big ass trees away after because you can't cut them sons of bitches up. Yeah, and they don't have Now you done equipment. ripped up the roots and everything. Yes. They they did buy a boat when they first got over there so okay. they can Probably a John stuff. boat. 
Uh, <laughs> what is that? The Mothman? <laughs> Anyways, they would come from Jonestown to like Port Kaitumas with their supplies and stuff and like equipment and everything. But I mean, not the stuff that they really needed. Yeah. Or could or would spend the money on. Not yeah. necessarily could, but would spend the money Probably on. Probably could too. The terrain they thought would be fertile was not. And they suffered for it later as they could not sustain themselves as was the original plan. The moisture and rough terrain would break any piece of equipment. And the re- to replace parts meant a long journey to Georgetown. So not always feasible to do in a timely man- manner, rendering a lot of these machines l- useless. And they would just like fucking sit around the place. <laughs> like, oh, we got to go to Georgetown. You know, it's not like getting Uber Eats <laughs> in the jungles of Guyana, you know. But they stayed busy nonetheless with tracking expenditures and other things to keep the the colony going. Regardless of the trials and tribulations, that intrepid dozen of colonizers for Jonestown, Jim would continue to speak about their promised land, dropping hints to his congregation. We're about to get some land south of the equator. Guyana is north of the equator, (laughs) y'all. Jim, get a damn map, okay? (laughs) He revealed on later that it was a tropical paradise of Guyana and that everyone had to start ponying up some money because it was going to be expensive to get their promised land together. This meant doing whatever possible from selling whatever they had left, um, giving the majority of their earnings to the church, any kind of way to fundraise. It took six months of working nearly every day and, of course, hiring help to help clear enough for the initial settlement of people. But in 1976... There were two major defections. Joyce Shaw defected in July 1976. She was not necessarily an important member, but what happened after she left was something that would punish her and scare people from defecting. Her husband, Bob Houston, did not want to leave the temple and stayed behind. As we discussed earlier, when you leave, it was like pretty much cutting yourself off from everything you have. And some of these people had been in the, like, People simple for a long, long time. So that was all they had. It was in his detriment that he stayed because in October 1976, Bob fell asleep on some train tracks and was subsequently cut in half in San Francisco. He just wink, wink, fell asleep. Went and took a nap on the train tracks. Okay. Took a dirt nap. (laughs) (laughs) Couldn't they come up with a better thing? Like he got drunk and stumbled off and passed out on him. Right. But here's the the rub. Bob's dad was a photographer with the Associated Press and friends of Congressman Leo Ryan, who would later visit Jonestown to investigate. Mm. Another major defection is Grace Stone, John John the Godchild's mama. Mama. She left without John John, Um, not because she wanted to, but she knew... If she took him and left, it would be noticed very quickly. Oh, yeah. He was already safe because at that time that she didn't think that he would really go that far. But she knew she could get further and get help to come back and get him. You losing one of your concubines, the mother of your godchild. Yeah, that's not good. And from there, she's going to start a custody battle that's going to lead to some really... Things coming out. Really bad decisions. On their part. The American, I mean, people's temple part. Yeah, on Jim Jones. Maybe some Kool-Aid involved. I don't know. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So that's where we're going to end today. 
And next time, we're going to talk about the mass exodus, what life was like in Jonestown, and the end of People's Temple. So prepare your Kool-Aids, kids. Mm, I'm excited. (laughs) I'm so excited to talk about all this death. So this next episode will probably be a little bit longer than the previous three, just so we can kind of tie it up. Because you can't really split talking about the death tape and everything. Spoiler alert. Yeah. (laughs) I'm like cut it in half. Be like, okay, till next time. (laughs) Okay, I know. We're not Game of Thrones. I'm not that much of a dick. (laughs) So let's talk about some cult safety. Just to reiterate, as we talked before, if you realize that you're in cult after listening to some of these things, here are some resources. The Freedom of Mind Resource Center. The Cult Education Institute. Encourage Survivors of Cult and Abuse, Hope Valley Counseling, International Cult Studies Association, and its partner, Spiritual Abuse Resources. If you need help and things are overwhelming, just let us know. We'll do what we can. But if you want to help us, (laughs) subscribe and rate us on all our platforms. Help us help you. (laughs) Help us help you. You want to learn more about cults? Boo, I got you. (laughs) I got you. Follow us on the socials, Okay. DM us if you have your own close-to-home stories. Check out our merch if you want to rep us and spread the sickness. In the meantime, stay safe. Keep your head on the swivel. And don't bring it so close to home, y'all. Stay, stay away from them cults, kids. Keep them away. Keep safe. Keep safe. If they start talking about religion and how they're Jesus. It's not good. Not good, bro. Mm-mm. Mm-mm-mm. The only time I've ever heard about Jesus being legit was with the night marchers, okay? <laughs> Footprints in the sand, baby. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Jesus walks. (laughs) Bye. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode of Too Close to Home, don't forget to rate and subscribe to us on most platforms. Follow us on our social media at Too Close Home Pod on Facebook, at Too Close Podcast on Instagram, or if you have your own Too Close to Home experience, shoot us your story at Too Close to Home at Yahoo.com. Thanks for listening.